Shiver me timbers. To our listeners from across all regions of the planet, welcome once again aboard the Robin Hood, flagship to the world's one and only cooperatively inspired charity podcast network, WPRPN. Broadcasting to the stars and beyond. You're listening to episode 124 of Pirate Radio Podcasts. I'm your host, as always, the ship's chief communications officer, Jaffe Ryder. This week, we host our favorite man of many pirate hats, Miami Tom Schaefer, as he returns to the Robin Hood for his first formal feature visit in 2018. In a life that's taken him from serving on America's nuclear submarines to freelance photography, to authoring science fiction, professional website design, and even launching his own bare-bones, no-strings-attached, consciousness-oriented religion, we'll aim to do our yeoman's best, hashing over as much of it as we can during the next approximately scheduled 90 minutes. Remember, if you've signed into Google, be sure to fire away with all your top guest-related thoughts, questions, and comments in the live-streaming peanut gallery sidebar menu. And would you believe we just lost our internet connection as we were working to go live here for the second time now. This has happened, so... Hopefully, this is not going to cause too much of an issue. We're just going to have to play this one by ear, folks. There, it looks like it's we've got it again. So, there was a bit of a typhoon scheduled to pass through here over the next couple of days. I don't think that's what's been affecting our Internet here. Keep a watch on things here. Hopefully, be able to maintain a relatively solid feed here over the course of the next approximate 90 minutes or so. Okay, OBS, successful reconnection. Tom, that's just one of those things that does come our way here as live streamers uh, and something that we've got to be on the lookout for. Now, is that uh, Free Cosmos that we have there? No, that's WPRPN. We lost our internet connection, Tom. I'm not sure. Oh, wow. I guess you weren't able to hear me. There was a typhoon, actually, that's passing on through the region here. That's one possibility, or it could have been just an in-house issue. But I think we're good to go, and I believe we've got all of our settings and everything 
in place. So hopefully listeners can look forward to at least half-assed professional live stream here over the next hour and a half approximately. So, hey, welcome back. Yeah, this is great. Uh, looks like everything's stable now. The stream dropped a couple times, but it looks like you're okay. We even got that old uh, squeaky captain's chair back in the action again That's right. This week. That's a special effect I paid extra for. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, geez. Extra post-production effort on my part, too, but uh, well, we'll do our best to... Uh, if you got a pillow, that would be maybe one way of doing that. Or, you know, the old WD-40 trick. No time to do that now, of course. So we're just no. going to have to no. uh, keep sailing along here on the fly. But, yeah, this is the third time you've been back and visit us here, courtesy of the Robin Hood. First time in 2018. I'm surprised. What is this now? It's the 10th month of the year. Just the way things worked out with the scheduling there's been really a lot going on here behind the scenes, too. A lot of activity with various people networking, working on their side projects or what have you. So uh, a lot of progress being made on multiple fronts. I've been noticing uh, people such as yourself, of course, primarily you, Augie, uh, Nori Love, who I've yet to actually speak to on a personal basis, broadcast team Alpha, pretty exciting things in store for you though it sounds like they're most definitely we'll get into that in a few minutes in the meantime though one of the things we were talking about just before we went live here this week was trying to trigger not sure if that's the best word necessarily or not but just to freshen our memories on how it was we first managed to cross paths yeah i believe that was through uh, dr j uh i'm not sure if you were a guest or an acquaintance or whatever that the linkage was friend of a friend kind of moment, I think. Somebody mentioned your name to me and said uh, something about connecting, networking. I'm not sure. Maybe it was Johnny, Johnny Webb. Could well have been Johnny. Johnny's an amazing networker. The guy just seems to connect with so many different people. He's got his tentacles everywhere. So uh, I think that's probably the way we connected was through probably through Johnny and uh, between Do Johnny and Dr. J, one of the two or both. Yeah, that's how I recall things as well, too, more or less. So just checking to see if we've got... <laughs> Our stream went for a total, if if you can believe that, a minute and 47. I'm not sure what to do here, why we, we completely lost the stream, or what's going on here exactly, but the chat has completely dropped out, and a uh, bit of a train wreck here from the get-go, unfortunately. I'm going to have to head off to the Creator Studio and take a look at what is going on exactly. It's well, your stream looks good from here, Jackie. It looks like everything's fine. Uh, it was dropping a couple of times I was watching, and it just completely dropped. Uh, so live stream offline. So any number of factors can affect this this whole Ah, uh, uh, here we go. Yeah, so well, you're right. Well, let's see. What has happened here, though, is... There's one of your guys... One of your regulars? Yeah. Now, Joe, let's just hear it from you. Did you follow the, the regular link that we had there, or how did you find us this week? And what did you experience from your end, Joe? Just to get clear on things here, because we always got to know what's going on out there in listener land. Mostly that's what's most important, of course. So 
anyways, it looks like we got him, and uh, hopefully, yeah, people are managing to find us. We'd already had almost not quite ten views, and it seemed like there was already half a dozen people that had joined us. So that was, I mean, you talk about a total unfortunate series of events, but what can you do? Thankfully now, though, it does look like, yes, our stream health is great, and internet connection is in place, so yeah. Alrighty, well, carrying right along now. So yeah, I think either Johnny Webb or more probably to the point, just Dr. J, because you had been working as his his web tech. Uh, well, as production, background production, video editing, uh, website, uh, the stream production, pretty much, yeah, the demand behind the curtain for all of this stuff. Graphics, integrating the graphics with the interviews and getting the production of the interview out the door with contact relative slides that went with the interviews. So I basically had to analyze the interview as they're going along after the interview was done and then produce those, uh, those interviews and then push them out to the, uh, to the YouTube channel where people could steal them and reproduce them on their channel. So we got that out of the way pretty much how we first managed to come into contact with one another back in the day. Let's just get into simply your backstory then. How it was that you first set out on this long journey, of course. You've been through so much and uh, we did kind of bill you as a man of many pirate hats, which is really the case most definitely from a nuclear submarine to your own independent freelance photography business to the IT and, and web tech expertise and finesse just so much ingenuity that you lend in that department obviously and, and so on and so forth so a bit of a backstory thumbnail sketch as it were and from that point maybe I'll just see if I can jump in and a lot of people don't really have much of an idea of who Tom Schaefer is uh I'm just a guy. I'm just some guy running loose. I'm just kidding. I um, I do have a rather varied background, but I've seen this statement, and that is that, and I agree with this statement, and that is I've never let wanted to let any one thing kind of define me. And then some people will say, well, you're too scattered. But I never wanted some statement to say, this is all you're ever going to be. And so I've tried my hand at a few different things, and some uh, some things I liked and some things I didn't. But I always believed that whatever I put my hand to, I was going to try to do the best I could. And then as I moved on to other things, I never said to myself, well, I have to give up that other thing. Can I be a photographer? And can I be um, a web guy? And can I be an IT guy? And can I do these other things along with? And maybe some people say, well, you're, you're not focused enough. And um I don't know. To me, I just didn't want to give up my ability to do these other things along with uh, and just let them be part of my landscape of capabilities. I never wanted to say, no, I I quit doing that. But, you know, I mean, I not totally. I mean, I have moved on from different things to different things. I spent most of my last 20-some years in IT, doing web development, IT work. But I didn't want to give up my photography. I didn't want to give up my art skills. So I have a background in art and photography. I got mentored by a regular studio photographer, learned how to photograph a lot of furniture and some like the what they called the Sunday supplements. They used to call them in the newspapers where it was the 
the ads that you would get that had uh, all the clothing in them for your local department store. So I was doing that kind of work. And uh, then I got into IT and uh, for a number of years did that. But I never uh, wanted to give up the photography. Got back into the photography around 2005, 2004, eh, I guess. Started integrating that with my web work. And having a lot of fun with it. I uh, did a lot of work down in the Miami area. But then I got to move up to uh, Nashville on a project. Wound up up there for a number of years in Nashville. And uh, Interesting town. Not what people think it is based on what they see on TV. A completely different world. Met a lot of great musicians there. I'm trying to think about... Uh, not sure what this gentleman is saying. Uh, Jappy's got slides running. This is just a, uh, he asked me for some slides, so I provided a bunch of different, uh, photos, you know, stuff that I've done over the years, stuff that I did a long time ago, a few shots from the Navy, a few shots from Tennessee, some from Florida. I love photography. That's been a big part of me. I like to do videos, videography. And then, of course, now this podcasting thing has really, uh, started to take off. People are, it's kind of a resurgence of podcasting, so I'm really enjoying that. Got involved with Aggie Nost and Nori Love, and we're doing a kind of a triple host thing over on BroadcastTeamAlpha.com. And we're doing mainly paranormal, ufology, consciousness, those kind of topics. And uh, well, there's a slide of my book, Two in the Collectors. It's a sci-fi novel. Uh, I like doing sci-fi. I've always loved science fiction. Science fiction's been uh, what I call the playground of what if. And there I am with a friend of mine. Uh, makeup artist down in Miami. So yeah, I've uh, I've had worn many hats, but it's mainly been audiovisual multimedia is where I've been. And uh, ask me anything. Well, right now I'm actually trying to just quietly work behind the scenes and getting a few of the links that we put out there updated because of the configuration issues. Uh, it is a new link that people are having to work with here, so I just can't believe the launch of things here unfortunately oh my god but uh well the thing is let me just give you a little as long as you're interviewing me and i can also give you some tech help here the thing is by bringing bringing people to your website they never have to know the stream link just have them come directly to the site you've got your stream right on the front of the site and if they want to watch it on youtube direct they can they can click the the uh, youtube link but i've done a little research and I've got your streaming set up to always be the same link for your streams so it doesn't matter typically what they don't tell you at YouTube is that if you just use the stream links on the YouTube creator panel you get this different link every time you want to stream well evidently that didn't work too well for a lot of gamers so the YouTube gaming community came up against this and said no we want permanent links and so YouTube came up with a way to give them a solid link for every time. So this never changes. Well, we've implemented that on your site. So now you have the same link all the time on your web page at WPR, WPRPN.com. So people don't really need to know the stream link. They just need to come to your website. And if they want to watch it on a bigger screen and they want to click to the actual YouTube link, they can do that right there on your website. It says YouTube Gaming, and that's because, you know, these big companies, there's a lot of back story and back secrets they never tell anybody about. 
So we've implemented that on your site, Jaffe. So all they need to know is come to your site. Yeah, that's a great point. And I'm just checking right now to see whether or not it has come through here on this end. It's taking some time to load. And I'm thinking the reason that might be is because we have not yet programmed or basically set up a new live stream via YouTube. We'll just have to see how this goes here. It's good to, you know, troubleshooting on the fly and then kind of what if scenario, uh, we're able to respond accordingly, obviously. Yeah, you don't have to give out that, that link that's on this live stream control panel. You don't have to give that link out. Just use the link that's on your actual front of your website. Yeah, WPRPN.com. Scroll the bottom. There you go. And it looks like it is. It's working fine. Yeah, yeah, so that's one of those things that it just picks up on it, as you say, automatically, and that you don't have to necessarily schedule a new live stream. So that's a great way of doing things. And because it could have been that we would have had to schedule a new stream entirely. Oh, yeah, then you got to go send in. out a whole new link. To me, it's just kind of the arcaneness. Uh, the unhelpfulness of a lot of this stuff. Uh, there's a lot of great features about YouTube, but uh, some of it is this backstory they don't talk about or inform the creators about. There's a lot of that going on with YouTube right now. There, there's this wall of silence, a wall of inaccessibility to anybody inside. So you basically have to second guess and reach, try to reach uh, conclusions through a lot of research and getting on sites like... Uh, Coder sites, you got to go in there and dig around. And GitHub? Find. How about GitHub? Well, GitHub is generally for building code. There's a, what is it, uh, not uh, short stack, Stack Overflow. Did you hear, Tom, how this, this past week Microsoft actually acquired GitHub for the tune of something, I think, $100 billion or some ridiculous amount? It was huge, astronomical. Yeah, it, to me, I'm not on there enough, but I remember GitHub started off as a kind of an independent nature. Right. And now to be bought up by one of these big uh, internet giants to me is, uh, I guess it could be good or bad. Microsoft has really changed a lot in the last couple of years with this new CEO they the, that they have. This is the Kraken. Google, uh, Microsoft, Facebook. Uh, it's as far as, you know, from our vantage point here, that's, we can't help but see them as being the crack. And until they change their ways, I mean, look at this most uh, recent election. Bad habits are hard to break, you know. So trying to swing things in favor of Hillary doing their damnness and still they failed at well, doing that. I, I just well. see it as corporatism out for its own gains. Me personally, maybe I'm naive. I just don't see that. Uh, maybe it's there. Maybe there is that coloring on the inside, but I, I don't. I don't see it on the outside. I don't see that. I see them as being a certain level of tech hubris that uh, this is what we're going to do and uh, the users be damned. Right. They'll just have to get used to it. But I don't see that as linked to any kind of a political push. I mean, I'm sure they have their own political push. They've tried to buy different aspects of different elections and political policies, but I don't see what they're doing right now. We're using the platform. I just see it as another Internet black hole. Another giant uh, that has become a de facto standard, and the de- and what people don't understand a lot of times about de facto standards is de facto standards come and go. When I first got into IT, uh, then we had the PC revolution back in the early 80s, 
And there were a couple of products that came on the market, as some of the old-timers will remember, but young people have no clue about. But they were the progenitors of current word processing and spreadsheet software. One was Lotus123, and the other one was um, WordPerfect. And WordPerfect and Lotus123 spawned careers for people. People made careers out of becoming experts with those products. They had the ability to build macros and kind of their own programming language built in. And I knew people that were building, uh, you could buy applications, accounting software built around Lotus 1-2-3. Another product that came out was called DBase. And then around DBase, another one called FoxPro. And so these products became de facto standards to where you weren't going to work in the industry unless you knew those products. Kind of the way Photoshop has become the graphics standard because it links not only to graphics, but it also links to printing and the printing industry, people being able to print uh, on a large scale using a lot of the integration that works with Photoshop and the print business. So you've got Adobe Illustrator for the magazine, uh, more that's more print related. But these products become de facto standards, but they're owned by private corporations. And so they have the ability, this is why Steve Jobs wanted to get rid of Flash, He said, we can't have our future keep being dictated by private companies. Adobe was holding the the strings on Flash, and Flash was very pervasive throughout the Internet. It was everywhere. And as a web developer, I was always being tasked with, well, do you know Flash? Do you know Flash? And it was always, I had this kind of sense or gut sense about this uh, proprietary nature. Me, I was always going to lean towards open source, HTML and and the web standards. And it kind of, it always did irk me. And I was very happy the day Steve Jobs came out with his big letter and said, we're not doing Flash anymore, we're done. So these de facto standards, they're good for a while. And then the things evolve, things move on. And I'm starting to see now YouTube's dominance is starting to wane because of policies that they've implemented that kind of alienate and drive away creators. At first, YouTube was the... Uh, Wild West, and it allowed a lot of freedom of expression. It allowed, it allowed uh, small creators to monetize. Now, as you, the common phrase I hear you use a lot of times, Jaffe, is they move the goalposts. They up the ante on how many subscribers you had to have, and they up the ante on how many views and how much watch time uh, it takes to now start monetizing. So they've created a preference for volume, volume producers, people that produce big watch counts, big subscriber bases. It's no longer the happy uh, level playing field that it was years ago. So this is a disappointment because it was one of the few platforms that actually paid you. If you played your cards right and got good uh, viewer counts and, and got a good audience, you could actually get paid for what you do. So these internet de facto standards are changing again. Now we're watching the rise of crypto-based payment platforms like DLive, DTube, BitTube, BitChute. A lot of these other platforms are rising up now because people are leaving uh, the YouTube uh, ecosystem. They're saying, okay, this has become very unfriendly to the creator, and um, it's time to find new happy hunting grounds. They've made it an unfriendly or hostile environment. Yeah, uh, and people voting with their mice, as I often like to uh, put it as well. So corporatism and this business of uh, Microsoft acquiring GitHub, I'm not sure what the implications of that are going to be, but it was only something 
GitHub, that is, I'd heard of just a little more than a year or so back when one of the first people who was on the scene here helping out with what was then just Pirate Radio Podcast kind of drew my attention to the site and uh, encouraged me to sign up. I'm not a coder at all, obviously, so is it just open source? And, and let's talk a little more about the whole the big tech kind of cracking once again as uh, we can't ourselves help but refer to it as, and you're so right about the little people getting screwed here once again. We just have to adapt. We can be victims and say, okay, they screwed me over one more time. It gets exhausting having to constantly adapt because you want to get to a place where you can actually begin monetizing again and getting some return on putting a lot of effort. And I think you and I talked about this. I had uh, had you on as a guest on my show last Sunday we talked about the fact that there is a considerable amount of effort that goes into producing even what seems like just a hot mic and a couple of guys yakking. There is considerable amount of production that goes into getting these this whole infrastructure in place. You get the website set up, you get the back end set up, and okay, now we got that under control. Now I need to actually produce listenable content. You want to put a little structure into what you're doing, a little research, a little thought process into it. And people, before you know it, you spent uh, a considerable amount of time that uh, you're never going to get back as far as a personal investment. And so you say to yourself, wow, do I keep doing this? At what point does it become monetary return? So I remember when the web was young like this, and uh, I began working with doing early web development, building websites. And a lot of times you had to create real estate, you had to put real estate out there and put some sites up so people could see what you were capable of. And it's kind of that same thing as you get into podcasting, you're going to have to start podcasting at a a personal investment, personal expense of getting all these things in place, getting your software in place. Okay, what am I going to use to stream with? What kind of microphone do I have? What kind of computer do I have? Do I need a camera? What kind of camera do I have? Am I green screening? Oh, yeah, I guess i got to do a green screen. What about virtual backgrounds? What kind of virtual background software do I need? So a lot of this stuff creeps up very quickly. You're, you're having to answer multiple questions all at once. It can be quite a crucible to get all of this stuff in place. Uh, it can be uh, quite a baptism of fire with technology, getting all the pieces in place. Uh, even when you get them all in place, you get technical failures that are beyond your control, like what happened this evening with your, or today, depending on what part of the planet you're on, with your stream. Could have been nobody's fault. Could have been some guy in a server closet somewhere that decided to reboot a router and said, man, nobody's going to miss this. I'm just going to reboot this. And we all have no idea who that guy is. He's working for Verizon. He could be working for Cisco. Be working for any number of Internet companies out there and just says, yeah, we're just going to move this over here. Plug it in again. There we go. And meanwhile, you're out here trying to run a live stream and stuff breaks and uh, you have no idea what happened along the way. So it could have been nothing at your end, could have been nothing at YouTube's end, could have been nobody's fault. Like you said, it could have been the weather, could have been a satellite tower that briefly went down because of a power spike. You know, there's any number of links in the chain that uh, could have broken. So these are the things you got to deal with, the stresses. You say you're going to go live at a certain time, and then at the last minute you're like testing things out, and wow, we don't have the driver for the uh, the desktop software. I remember we had to deal with that on my show. I'm like, what? This used to work. And then you get ready for showtime and something breaks. So this ability, to, you've got to be quick on your feet with this kind of stuff. 
Oh, absolutely. And thankfully, we did manage to bounce back without too much stress or difficulty. Just following the slideshow here, getting a chance to take in a screenshot picture here of the book that you published a number of years ago. And we featured you in discussing this, of course, too. I think that was, you know, you were one of our first shows back in... This is 16, I think, wasn't 2016, it? 2016, yeah. Show number 5, and then number 48. Now you're episode 124. So, yeah, two in the collectors. We could talk a little bit about sure. that in brief. Let's shift gears a little bit, maybe, yeah. and uh, put the focus on more your science fiction and authoring career. Let's talk, then, a little bit about, yeah, two in the collectors. Have you put anything out since then, or what sort of, uh, how extensive is your writing library? Well, you made it sound so impressive. I'm sorry to let you down. I have had to put all of that on. There's been some shifting of the gears, as you say, with my own life in moving back to Florida and re-architecting. I was in business for a year with my brother. Uh, we took a different path, both of us. So now I'm shifted back into podcasting, into doing the, the uh, video production on my own. But back to Two in the Collectors, something interesting has happened from three different vantage points. I was told uh, back when I first released the book, a lot of people heard about the book, and I remember talking with Dr. J. It was on, he had interviewed me, and he said himself, wow, this sounds like a download. And at the time, I really didn't really want to kind of make up a story about ET contact or any of that stuff in reference to myself. I've always been more of like, needs to be something concrete, needs to be something tangible. But a lot of the ideas and concepts in that book were not very well refined from a historical, where I had spent years of research on it. That book came to me very quickly. The concepts in the book, the architecture of the book, everything kind of came to me as if it was a memory. And I really didn't see it as a download. But now, looking back and having talked to several other people, including two psychics now, who have confirmed that they say uh, the book was indeed a download. And the reason I can say that now is you've interviewed uh, Robert Vandenberg. Robert uh, called me up and said, I really need to do a reading for you. And I said, okay, great. What, what, what have you got in mind? He said, well, he started doing this reading and... I don't think Robert's read my book, to be quite honest. He's Dutch, and I don't. his English is not that good. He really has not paid attention to my book. So he said, I'm really sensing that uh, these people that you're connected with, you're connected with the Andromeda Galaxy. And I said, really? And so I asked him, I said, what are the people? Who are the people? And he struggled a little bit, and he said, okay, let me just think about that a second. Let me ask. And it came back, it's the same name as the people in the book, Z. I'm like, okay, well, that's pretty wild. So if you're um, someone who subscribes to these kinds of things, for me it was a little bit of a cosmic revelation that the book was not just an idea, but there was a download involved. That this, I believe this was a form of contact through that book, that they were trying to relay a message. And a lot of the ideas and concepts in the past five years, since I've gotten more well-versed on, a lot of it is uh, future design and... Um, colonization, recolonization of our own planet. A lot of these concepts, I'm only now getting better versed on. I look back, I'm like, wow, I wrote that? So there was an element that kind of, I think, goes beyond science fiction that it really was a download. And so I was also had this confirmed by another psychic back in April who told me, she said, oh yeah, 
That's a download. And uh, my guides are telling me you need to write the second book. She didn't know the book at all. She'd never even seen the book. So this is something that I've kind of said, okay, all right, this is cool. And I noticed that people are asking some questions about uh, the, my Navy experience. The submarine I served on was a 637 class. It was prior to the 688 class. The 688s came out in overlap as the 637s were going out, the 688s were coming in. So this is the uh, the 637 class. Commissioned in 67, retired and cut up into razor blades in 1989. I think it had 28 years. So, Pirate Joe Eminon talking about how he wrote the steering and diving simulation instructions and designed right. it. So, yeah, he's a very technically oriented individual as well, a real brain and a really bright guy, obviously Had very no skilled. That's great. Yeah, no, he's uh, one of the original phone freakers. Um, oh, no kidding. Yeah, do you know much about phone freaking? We'd like to actually oh, yeah. do a, a feature show on the whole business. Back when I was in high school, I was an electronics hobbyist because there were no personal computers per se. There were mainframes, but there were no personal computers. But you, uh, phone freaking was all about playing games with the tones. Like when the first touch tone phones came out, all those tones were different frequencies. And so people figured out they could play with those tones and inject codes through the sound of the phone itself and get long distance calls for free. Uh, there was a very fa- famous phone figure that uh, figured out that this little whistle that came in the Captain Crunch uh, cereal, this little bosun's whistle, it had two tones. If you blew that whistle the right way into your phone handset, you could trip the triggers on these AT&T computer systems, which were all relays and switches. And so those systems were constantly listening, and you could tweak those systems with, with tones, with the regular sound tones. So these guys came out with these things called, uh, I think they were blue boxes, and uh, you could tweet telephone calls around the world. I think Steve Jobs was one of those people that actually sold those boxes. He was selling phone freaker boxes back in the 70s before he started Apple. A little side note there. Yeah, I think, in fact, this phone freaker that you're referring to, his actual nickname was Captain Crunch. Still is, yes. as a matter of fact. I think he is still here with us uh, in, in the land of the living. You've got a slide of myself there, I gave you, where uh, last weekend they just commissioned the USS Indiana in Port Canaveral. So we right. went up there and got some pictures. I had not been on a boat. Now, this is kind of freaky for me to say. I have not been on a nuclear submarine for 36, 38, close to 40 years. And it was interesting to go up there, stood in line for like four hours waiting to get about a 10-minute tour of the boat, something that never happens. And so it was well worth roasting in the sun to wait to get the tour on this boat. You see me there wearing a blue shirt that had my old boat's name on it. Well, these guys, of course, they saw that, and they asked me what my rate was and that I was a machinist mate, which is, in Navy parlance, a machinist mate is not a guy that runs a lathe. It's not a guy that makes machined parts. A machinist mate in the Navy is a guy that does mechanical work. So I was basically a mechanic. So I kind of talked to one of the guys, and I said, uh, what are the chances I could see uh, some of the machinery spaces? So I got a little bit of a a separate tour there, got to see uh, some of the modern versions of gear that I had worked on, the the oxygen, the atmosphere cleaning equipment, got to see the torpedo room, and uh, the control room on these new submarines is utterly amazing. All digital screens, 
They can swap things around. Very clean, very organized compared to the mechanical mess the older submarines were. This uh, submarine was very clean, very, uh, very organized. Amazing piece of gear. It's the space program for those that can't get into the space program. If you want to get into the space program and you can't quite make it, get into the submarine service. And uh, you'll get a taste of what it's be like being on a spacecraft. The thing that struck me the most was, you know, there's been a book written recently in recent years. Uh, we were soldiers. Well, when I was there on the tour, I was reminded that we were children. You're looking at 18, 19-year-old guys that uh, early 20s that are on these submarines running these these boats. Uh, the old guy is the captain, and he's 40 years old. So really struck by the youth that is running this equipment, and that's what I was. I mean, I was barely 18, 19 years old, uh, uh, doing all this mechanical work. Uh, it's very serious work, keeping these uh, boats running out at sea. But if you want the space program and you can't get in the space program, get in the submarine service. That was actually an area I was hoping to get into with you this week, of course, your recent visit out to, did you say it was Cape Canaveral? Yeah, there's a Port Canaveral, which is all nearby. I mean, as you're driving along the, the water, you can see the vehicle assembly building for NASA. It's about, uh, I don't know, it's just north of there. So Port Canaveral is just south of the Cape Canaveral uh, launch facility. You can actually see the tower. You can see it on the horizon. It's, I would guess, five miles, a couple miles. You know, I'm not good at guessing distances, but, you know, I knew what I was looking at on the from the north as you're driving along the water from Port Canaveral. It's just a couple miles north of Port Canaveral. So you're in the same area. There's marinas. There's all kinds of stuff going on. And you've got cruise ships coming in and out of there, big cruise ships. So you've got uh, these piers. And now the Navy has opened a training facility for missile launch systems for training people on missile launch there at Port Canaveral. And so these guys will be coming and going from time to time, bringing their boat in, which was to me kind of fascinating that they picked Port Canaveral. So it's only an hour north of where I live, so I said, let's go see. We got there probably about 9.30 in the morning, and they were going to start this commissioning ceremony around 10, but I didn't realize that we needed to get there even earlier to have gotten close in. So they kind of closed off the pier to the ceremony uh, until after it was over, and then we could cross over. So we literally did a lot of waiting around before we got up close, got the tour, got to go on board. Of course, they made you lock up all your camera gear, and uh, they had everybody put their cell phones in lock boxes, and that's it. You just get to go see with your own, you can see with your eyes, but there will be no photos. So, One of the uh, questions I was actually hoping to throw your way actually and have you addressed was dealing with your actual job on board submarine number 647 the class uh, the size relatively small was what pirate joe was saying but that you actually maintained hydraulics pneumatics whatever that whatever air that systems. is a, di- a blow diesel systems that blow all the air out diesel there. engine and the ship's fresh water systems as well as maintaining the ship's air scrubbers which filtered out all that unacknowledged marijuana smoke people were are smoking weed on uh, America's This was the submarines. pirate navy my friend this was the pirate navy now when i saw this boat i didn't see any marijuana smokers so i'll tell you that right now but i will say unofficially off the record out here on a public internet broadcast, 
that uh, there were rumors. There were some rumors about people doing that. But uh, this was the Pirate Navy. I looked at these guys were all clean scrub, uniforms all in place. It was a different Navy back then. Uh, this was, uh, I was in in 77 through 79. You had a lot of older guys that had come through the Vietnam War that had come off of diesel boats and had gotten into the nuclear Navy. The nuclear Navy was probably 10 to 15 years old at the time, so it really wasn't as established as it is now. Uh, the idea of a diesel submarine only now. I think there's a, there's some experimental boats out there now using different kinds of, uh, propulsion and, and systems. Uh, Sterling engines. There's some European uh, submarines that are using Sterling engines instead of nuclear. The Japanese Navy is still using diesels. I could be wrong. The, the nuclear Navy at the time when I was in, Hyman Rover was still king of the roost. He was still dictating policy. He was still examining every nuclear officer assigned to every boat. He had his hand in everything. It's a different Navy now. There's a lot more clean cut, uh, a little more Boy Scout. We were complete pirate navy. We were kind of proud of our. We were kind of out of uniform a lot of the time. Shirts weren't tucked in. Hats were optional. We just didn't see ourselves as part of the regular navy. Kind of the same way a lot of these spec ops guys, you know, they grow their hair long and beards to fit in. Uh, a little bit different, a little bit more fringe camaraderie than what you have on a regular sailor sail, uh, navy ship. Regular navy ships, everything's by the book. But I saw these guys asking permission to come aboard and then leave the ship. We never asked. We just left. There was a much more casual nature to the Navy that I was in. It was almost a pride in breaking the rules. But now I saw could have been commissioning day. Everybody's got their whites on. Everybody's in tip-top, clean-cut condition. Uh, maybe once they go back to regular sea time, they'll be a little crazier. But my role was that of uh, kind of like on Star Trek. I was a red shirt. I was a guy that uh, was background doing maintenance and uh, just crew members, you know, unknown crew member. Uh, I did get to do the driving and the diving, uh, sit in the what's now known as the pilot seats. But I actually got the opportunity to sit in one of the pilot seats on this new boat. And uh, they have all the instrumentation we actually dreamed about back in the day. The instrumentation we had was all mechanical, old school instrumentation. We had a digital depth gauge. That was as good as it got. And it would show these big red digits about our depth. But these guys, it's like, I would say it's similar to being in a Tesla. They have uh, all these panels that have everything uh, in digital. Everything is like 40-inch TV displays turned vertical. Uh, and they can do with them whatever they want. They can switch them around, program them to show whatever they want. And their tracking systems, we had paper uh, laying on top of light tables. These guys have real just like Google Maps for their tracking. So they can watch, you know, their navigation is all digital. So definitely uh, once in a lifetime because uh, nobody's ever going to see any of that again. Any of those people that took that tour, those tours are so rare to get on board those boats. So that was definitely worthwhile. Definitely had a good time. It's amazing to think how far the technology has come just in the past few decades, really. Outside of that, though, one of the things, going back to the Pirate Navy, as you referred to it back in your day of time in service to the nation, there was a few times where you, I guess, docked and had a little shore leave out of 
various exotic places around the world, including Hong Kong. I'm not sure if there's any just brief stories you could share with us or not, but uh, things would have uh, gone a little on. It was pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah, pretty wild. I remember uh, going to Hong Kong. We were were not there that long, but, uh, yeah, that was pretty crazy. I was there with uh, two other guys, and we had a guy that, his whole sole reason for joining the Navy was to party. He was a surfer dude from San Diego, and you asked him outright, what did you join the Navy? And he said, I just wanted to party. And he was one of these people that always came up with catchphrases. He would keep a catchphrase going as his stock response to anything you said to him. He was kind of a comedian, so anything you ever said to him for a while, it was always trying to quit. And then uh, he'd switch up, he'd be, uh, couldn't take it. So he would constantly come up with these catchphrases. He was just, he'd laugh. He, this guy was just funny and um, had the whole surfer dude mentality, but a completely clean cut <laughs> in the Navy guy. And when we got to Hong Kong, he was gone for, we couldn't find him. Finally, the day we left, he showed up. And uh, I remember uh, hiking up to the top of Victoria Peak and um, he'd gotten so trashed, he wound up falling face first into his food at a restaurant there at the top of the Victoria Peak. And then we took this, I guess they had kind of a tram or a kind of an open train car thing that you could take down from the top. And I remember that vaguely. It may not even still be there, who knows. But uh, we couldn't get him back to the boat. He disappeared. He took off running. And we're like, you're in Hong We don't even know where you're at. <laughs> this guy was so wasted. <laughs> he just took off. They ultimately found him, tracked him down, got him back to the boat the day we were heading out of Hong Kong. But yeah, it was pretty crazy. The people that uh, I, I served with were a pretty crazy crew. Have you ever seen that movie, The Flight of the Intruder? There's, I think there's an opening scene there. It's very similar to the kind of the, that Navy, that near, that era. Uh, it was very crazy. People would go out of their way to get as crazy as they could in port. I'm not sure if that's still the case or if people are pretty clean cut now, but... Imagine people have their own adventures now. It'd be uh, a lot more challenging and not as easy as it was from the sounds of it. Drug testing wasn't even in place when you were in the service back in the mid to late 70s, I don't think, was it? They had just started it in 79 when I got out. They had just started doing that. And uh, a lot of people got caught in the net, and uh, they did a big purge of a lot of people. So it was, uh, you know, they, they, this was the Navy's recognition. Uh, but at the same time, the morale of that boat that I was on was really bad. And um, people were not happy. The nuclear part of the crew always works the hardest, has the hottest, sweatiest job because of the engine room. They're in the engine room. And it's generally they they get the best benefits of that training, yet at the same time they got to pay for it. Or at least back then they did. Comfort levels just weren't as good as they are now. Uh, but being back aft all the time, they were really constantly under a lot of scrutiny because this is a nuclear reactor. Uh, so the regulations and the scrutiny was very tight with the nuclear crowd. They get kind of a martyr complex, a lot of those guys. But now a lot of them, you know, they wind up leaving the Navy and they go into working for nuclear power plants and they do quite well. The sacrifice they made of a lot of really intense pressure for their job uh, and the intense pressure of the training they went through. Nuclear power training in the Navy is some of the most intense uh, schooling that they have. A lot of people wash out 
the auxiliary division that I worked in was composed mainly of guys who had washed out of the nuclear power program. So kind of added to the pirate element of uh, the division that I worked with. We had a lot of very bright people. They just, you know, scores didn't make it and they washed out. They didn't get to become nukes. It was kind of a, a letdown for them to have to work on just non-nuclear equipment. But that's kind of all inside baseball. It's the last thing you would want, and it's, of course, a scandal that has just recently uh, reemerged with the reports. I'd have to track them down, courtesy of DuckDuckGo. Maybe yeah, one of the Pirate Joes uh, could do this as well, too. Well, the conversation streams along here, but yeah, sure, it was just a couple months ago that there were a few servicemen whose jobs it was to, they were working out of the silos, I guess, and the actual nuclear missile sites where the warheads are launched from, and they were found to be getting high all the time, smoking weed, dropping acid, and I think coke was involved, and kind of going off the deep end, obviously. Uh, It's not surprising, though. You're looking at, um, once you've learned all the procedures, the way the procedures work, there's a high degree of compartmentalization and regimentation that goes with these jobs. And they do become rather mundane. There's a lot of backups and safety systems built in. And it's like anything else after a while. I mean, I remember being out at sea sleeping 20 feet away from nuclear weapons in the torpedo room. So you get used to being around all this gear and explosives and torpedoes and just high-tech gear nonstop. You just kind of get desensitized to it. So I'm not giving them a free pass. Obviously, we don't want people doing that. But they're human beings, and people get – for example, I hate to say this, but it was a real problem on the boat as a driver because of the way the instrumentation was laid out. It was just laid out poorly. And you got used to the job of driving this submarine. You doze off. People dozed off constantly because you're, there's nothing to look at. There's no, there's nothing to keep your interest. So you're used to doing this. You got power steering and power, uh, depth control. I could change the depth within six inches with these, even back then, 35, 40 years ago, you could change the depth within a couple of inches with very little effort. You became very good at it after a while. You could change course very slowly without making a sound. Um, they had sound detection that would tell if you swished the rudder. You knew how to use those controls. After a while, it was old, old hat. You were so used to it. So, yeah, I can see why people, they get bored. They uh, are in a mundane job that, uh, although, yeah, they're guarding nuclear weapons, uh, having to go into work every day, things become mundane. Uh, they drop their guard, which is why maybe they rotate people out a lot more than they used to. And there's a lot more automation behind it. So I can understand people being people. Got guys working in machine shops get high before they go to work, and yet they're running lathes and gear that can cut their hands off. People are willing to get high or in dangerous situations. It just seems like to be the nature of humanity. I don't know if we're going to have much of a chance to get into your photography or not. I'd just like to say uh, you did mention Nashville earlier. Uh, there is this note here as well, too, of course, a big highlight to your career as a photographer. And uh, people, yes, by all means, check out this the streaming slideshow. A lot of those pictures are, in fact, Tom's. A lot of really great work indeed. But back in 2010, it was out of the Brickell Gallery in Miami. Back in 2010, for the city of Miami, 114th birthday party, 
where, uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of a big to do and, and affair. So something that I would have been quite excited about if it had been me, you would consider that a highlight to your photography career. I'd Absolutely. Imagine. Absolutely. I was kind of blown away. I got a phone call, uh, one afternoon and, um, this lady that was the curator of the Brickle Gallery, a lady named Maravilla, uh, really nice lady. She calls up and says, um, so listen, um, we would like to showcase your work at uh, the city's birthday party. So this was a big birthday celebration. Uh, a couple of different chambers of commerce had put together and another marketing company had all kind of thrown this together. And it was being held at the Miami American Airlines Arena, which is the same place where the Miami Heat plays. She said, no, we're not kidding. We really would uh, like to. I said, okay. I said, well, why me? Kind of like uh, that old movie network. Why me? Because you're on television, dummy. Uh, no, because uh, they said, we just really like your work. And I said, okay, great. A few days later, I went down and they selected a bunch of photos. And they selected work that I would not necessarily have selected. Uh, they wanted what they wanted. And they spent uh, some money putting my work on canvas. And they built some beautiful displays to hang it from. And uh, so I got to have my work displayed to about 2,500 people right off the Miami Heat locker room. So that was really, yeah, it was a little crowning moment. I tell people this all the time. Most artists, you hope to open in a gallery that uh, you know the guy that owns the gallery and you finally got their favor and you got 50 to 75 people to show up and nobody buys anything. But uh, my that was really my first big open there in Miami, and it was cool. I, I had 2,500 people there, and a lot of people wandered through, and I got to uh, talk about my work and show it off. Always been a great memory for me to have done that or to have had that that moment. So yeah, I enjoyed that. It was fun. I think any any photographer would love to have their work displayed like that and I'm uh, always been grateful to those people for doing that. In fact, the woman that uh, was the partner of the gallery, she was from Argentina and very difficult person to work with but very generous that uh, I was really amazed that she agreed and was very complimentary and everybody told me later that you got selected by her was a a major win because she was extremely difficult to work with and very very picky and i'm like okay wow okay very very cool you've in the past as well too done a lot of work in nashville applying your photography skills i think we've added a few pictures to yeah. the slideshow via Nashville, but you've got a few stories to share with our listeners regarding that musical city, so let's hear it. Nashville's a uh, very interesting uh, city. People know it as Music City. A lot of great musicians there. The one thing I learned is that uh, the session musician community, the people that play a lot of the music that people love, you'll never really know who they are unless you're in that business. You know, you pick up an album, or a collection of songs now. People don't really call them albums except for us old-timers. But you pick up a release of music, and most people a lot of times won't know who those people are that were playing the slide guitar or playing the instruments or the trombone or the sax. But the session musician community is very tight there, and it is almost a quicksand as a musician you get there. And if you know how to chart and you know how to read music and you can compose you can get work as a session musician. Uh, a lot of people are just good on guitar. It's not enough to just be good on guitar. You need to know how to read music as well as play it. And uh, there's several great music schools there. So if you want to learn music, there's a couple of great schools. But 
I met a lot of these session musicians, and they would have one of them that I met, a guy named Jerry Navarro, would gather these session musicians up for kind of like a closed jam session nights where these people, it was they were basically playing to themselves. It wasn't really open to the public, and they would just have a jam session, and you could... Uh, you knew that your band was coming up after the next one. And uh, I remember videotaping a few of those. And uh, it was really cool being around other artists. For me, my my instrument is my cameras. Their instruments are, you know, whatever their musical instrument is they play. But it's a similar affinity being around. And I remember going uh, to a jazz jam session just where these guys just get together and they'll play jazz standards. It's them playing to themselves and just... You know, you want to play the keyboards on a jazz standard. You go to one of these, kind of like a meetup group, uh, and you're going to be in there, and they're going to be, uh, there's a girl there that wants to sing to jazz standards. So you have all these different musicians, and they, they, they go through the songs and play them. And that's their kind of hangout. So that was really cool. I uh, got to see some of that and then shot a lot of musicians, photography-wise. I like shooting musicians as they're playing. For me, that's kind of a really cool moment of creativity that uh, a lot of people don't realize at that moment creativity is being released, that music is just magic and uh, communicates to any, through. there's no language barrier with music. So I could see that, and I love shooting musicians as they perform, catch them in that moment, vocalists or whatever instrument they play. So that was fun, being in studios, shooting the backstory behind albums being created, that kind of stuff, love that kind of stuff. Just love the whole thing. Got to go into a bunch of different studios up there, see a lot of different uh, styles of the way. And to me, that in itself, watching these sound engineers do what they do, it's an art in itself. And there's a really great, uh, you want to be a sound engineer or video production, Tennessee State Middle Murfreesboro has a great uh, studio training. So if you want to be an audio engineer, Tennessee State has, or State of Tennessee has a really nice university there. You can learn all those different arts. Beautiful studios, beautiful facilities. So yeah, I had a great time there. Uh, the one thing though is a lot of these musicians could not afford to have a photographer come out and shoot them, which is one thing they need a lot of. They're in the very position they're in of starting out or trying to make a breakout. They couldn't afford the very thing they needed. So I had a lot of fun, uh, made a lot of great friends, and, uh, Saw a lot of great music. Yeah, I was just wondering, I'm sure some of our listeners are as well too, what some of the bigger names were that you managed to catch in action. You know, it's funny. I remember going to one of the big, uh, every year in Nashville they have in June, first week in June they have this thing called Country Fan Days. A lot of the big names will play, the whole downtown area turns into kind of a music venue all over town. And you'll see different bands playing all over the place. The big musicians will pop in and out of different venues as kind of a surprise. I really did get to see a lot of those people. I didn't meet a lot of them. Uh, met a few producers. I met one guy that was connected with some of those people, but I was never in on that, that level. I was not much different than the session musicians. I was very unknown. Uh, but I did have a good time. Met a bunch of them. But I was also working some IT projects while I was there as well. So web projects and things like that. So that wasn't, I wasn't really doing it for the income, mainly doing it for the art. And I have a couple of close friends up there that uh, they needed a photographer. They'd give me a call and come out to their different performances. Yeah, there's just so much music going on there that uh, you got beyond country. You've got jazz and blues going on there in a big way. 
big jazz and blues contingent there. A lot of people don't even know about. So you can see anything you want there. Speaking of projects you happen to find yourself a part of, we've only got another 20, 25 minutes here just looking at the clock. I think it's time once again that we sort of shake things up and shift the focus to what you have on the go here as far as your own podcasting and live streaming projects are concerned. you got a lot. This broadcast team alpha sounds really quite exciting. Let's hear what you've uh, got in mind, uh, how things are looking uh, from this particular moment, as well as let's not forget the Free Peoples of the Cosmos live stream which you just launched last week with... Uh, now, who was your first guest? Uh, Jaffe Ryder. Oh, the Jaffe Ryder. Oh, God. Well, that was me. How about that? <laughs> so, small world. That's We're right. Very yeah. auspicious. The serendipity, uh, quite something, including the fact that we've just had you here, as things would have it, following up uh, our chat last week. Actually, that was two weeks ago now. You inspired kind of me. With uh, Dr. J. So, yeah. Let, yeah let's hear it, it's man. like old home week here. Well, you inspired me. You have just decided to make a hot mic twice a week. And, you know, I said, okay, well, you know, if Jaffe can do this, I've been doing production, this background production role for a number of years. But I felt more compelled that I wanted to be out on camera if I needed to be or in front of the mic. I feel like I have something to say that I want to get out. And so that's what happened with the free people of the cosmos. And that project was all about advancing human consciousness, getting this message of peace, love, happiness, and balance out, trying to tip the scales in the global consciousness or the global mindset back towards being nice to humanity. So that's what the free people of the cosmos was all about. I formed it as a charity, as a 5013C, and actually... Uh, I've heard you say it's kind of a spoof religion. It's a religion of no religion because uh, a lot of people form these nonprofits that are corporate nonprofits. And I, I didn't want to be a corporate nonprofit. I think there is a spiritual component to the whole consciousness thing that it was so badly misinterpreted by humanity. And I think there is this essence that we connect with in the cosmos that's bigger than just science and accidental amoebic development. I think there's something bigger. There's a larger intelligence that we're all connected to. Uh, as the people in the law of one refer to, the infinite intelligence. I can identify with that. That makes sense to me. The idea of a god, a gray-haired, uh, a gray-bearded, or a white-bearded, kind of a Santa Claus with a white robe on, never appealed to me, even though I was raised in religion. I just never bought into any of it. But I could see the sense behind a logical, cosmic connection that I hear about in Law of One or in some of the Buddhist teachings, some of the uh, the Eastern Asian religions. I can buy into some of this without the religious stuff. I, the, some of that stuff is kind of silly. But this concept that we're connected to something greater, I can identify with. It seems like it makes sense. I can buy into that. So I wanted to do something charitable, and that's where the Free People of the Cosmos Project came along. Well, as I'm doing that, I had gotten permission from Dr. J to feature a few of my videos, and then I started doing a few interviews, not many, on my Free Cosmos YouTube channel. And then uh, met Agi Nas. Actually, I had met him through Dr. J, and he and I were talking, and he said, you know what, I've got somebody else. We want to form another podcast, essentially, another project. So he and I and a woman named Nori Love, uh, which I interviewed her. She's a hypnotherapist, registered nurse, uh, law of attraction coach, and just a really very cool individual all the way around. 
we have these three different perspectives coming together on broadcasting alpha. Aginost is into the cosmic consciousness thing as well. He and I are both ufologists. We love ufology. And then Nori brings in more of the spiritual consciousness, new age side of it, law of attraction uh, element and coaching. She brings a lot of that element in. And so for her, the ufology is not her area. So we're three different focuses coming together on broadcast team alpha. And uh, since it is Friday that we're doing this, uh, you can catch us on Sunday afternoons and you can go to broadcastteamalpha.com. And check out the show schedule. We're going to be on uh, live stream on Sunday. We're starting a whole new series. We decided to start doing monthly, a kind of a monthly series with our podcasts. So this month is going to be Reaching for Utopia. People can uh, engage with us in that whole topic. You know, the concept of utopia has been pretty much beaten into everyone's head that it's an impossibility. And what do we have instead? Society reaching for dystopia. So we're going to talk in the other direction and say, well, no, wait a minute. Is utopia possible? What are the possibilities about utopia? And uh, this is something actually that I discussed in my book, Two of the Collectors. So this is the subjects of special study and research Tom likes to get into. I love imagineering. I love the imagination, the playground of the imagination, science fiction. So this is going to be a lot of fun. If you're interested in what the future could be, tune that in. And then Sunday mornings, following Jaffe Ryder's lead, I decided to do more of a free streaming, open concept of podcasting. Instead of formal interviews, more of a, like I say, free streaming or loose conversation about current topics in the consciousness arena. Sunday I'll have uh, Robert Vandenbroek on. And we're going to do, he's going to do some readings for people. That'll be Sunday morning, Eastern time, 9 a.m. So that'll be on the Free Cosmos channel. So kind of going crazy with all this stuff, but I'm having a good time. I think there's something that, there's a message that needs to get out. I think we need to step up the volume. Like you have, Jaffe, you've kind of stepped up the volume on asking the right questions about current events, taking the mask off of a lot of current events and kind of re-examining things. So that's what we're going to do. We're, we're stepping up the volume on consciousness, awareness, paranormal, accepting the paranormal now. People are starting to accept the paranormal, quantum possibilities. So that's what uh, Broadcast Team Alpha is all about, uh, engaging conversations with quantum possibilities, you know. Decent little catchphrase there for sure. So just to be clear, to let listeners know if they want to uh, tune in, check you out, there's Sunday's a busy day for you, morning mm-hmm. times. It's the Free People of the Cosmos live stream. And then I guess you're going to just share with people other items that you have uh, pre-recorded and then have them go online later in the afternoon. Is that right? I'm doing the same thing you're doing here, live stream at 9 a.m. Uh-huh. Uh, and I've got a guest. i got uh, Robert Vandenbroek. He's going to come on, uh, just like I had you on. That's It'll be right. a little more informal. Right. That's 9 a.m. That's, you know, an hour or whatever we do with that. And that's and in then, the Eastern time zone. you got to remember, yeah. that's for the real early birds out there on the West Coast of America. Europe is going to, uh, I guess that would be the... Uh, Lunchtime uh, in London. Yeah, there you go. So hopefully be able to... Uh, Pick up a few listeners out of Europe, of course. Broadcast Team Alpha, what time does that kick off? We actually are on what's known as the L&M Radio Network. But we also stream live on YouTube simultaneously. 
In fact, L&M Radio, they handle all of that. So we just show up at uh, 3 p.m., they Skype us, pull us in, and we, we tackle the topic at hand. So we, we don't have to do any of the production. L&M Radio does a great job on production. So uh, we do that, uh, and it's radio style. It's not cameras. But our regular interviews with guests, pre-recorded, we do those on camera. So then I take and I do the post-production on those and clean them up and get those ready for uh, YouTube. But our Sunday show is, again, for Broadcast Team Alpha. That's another little bit more loose format, but it also has a topic. So we kind of do a roundtable, and it's really not guest-driven. We don't do any guests. It's mainly just the team talking about a topic. And so we're going to cover Reaching for Utopia in October. November, we we don't have a topic yet. We're still doing... uh, some ideas on the November topic, but we'll announce that towards the end of uh, end of October, and then we're going to be on a special show at the end of October on LNM. They have their Spookathon, so we'll be on for a couple extra hours towards the end of October. But that Sunday show is every Sunday at 3 p.m. Eastern for Broadcast Team Alpha. So I invite everybody to come over and check that out. A spookathon, much I would imagine along the same lines as to what we have in store for listeners. Friday the 26th of October, just checking the calendar here, yes, that is indeed what we're looking at there, folks. So, And just to let people know, too, spookathon, before we get too sidetracked and carried away, what does that entail in its entirety then? Well, we're still kind of formulating that, but again, our favorite paranormal guy is Robert Vandenbroek. He's going to be on board, and we're going to have him do some readings for people that want to call in. Uh, L&M Radio has their own call-in numbers, so we're going to entertain some people calling in. We're talking about having a tarot card reader uh, during that time. I'm not real big on Halloween myself, but I do accept the paranormal that there's something that's gone going on again, outside of what science can explain, uh, as much as I love science and I love the rigorous scientific method, there's just areas of life that just can't be explained. We can't just sweep it all into one bucket. So the paranormal is something that uh, we entertain. We're going to entertain that on uh, on that Saturday show on the 27th. So that'll be Broadcast Team Alpha, a little special show. And we'll be promoting that beforehand. So once we iron down, we're looking for another guest that'll be doing the tarot card readings it's going to be kind of a loose format of readings, getting people to call in and that need a reading of some kind, ask a question. Not a long reading, just, you know, maybe a question. You got a question for uh, Robert, and uh, they'll be able to give him a question, and let's see what he comes back with. So I think that's going to be a lot of fun, very engaging, very interesting for people to tune into. Yeah, I'd definitely like to check that out if I can, if the time is a decent fit although no i think with broadcast team alpha unfortunately that's a little late here for me in south korea the free peoples of the cosmos so that's a great fit i'm really looking forward to hearing some of your upcoming interviews outside of robert vandenbrook and we do have a couple other names here that we have made note of billy carson i believe is one and as i'm multitasking here Billy has graced our set. Billy's a fantastic individual. This guy, check out his website. Go to ForbiddenKnowledge.com. This guy is a research machine. This guy has traveled the planet, gone to a lot of ancient sites, 
and researched a lot of megalithic structures, a lot of the, the amount of research. He's released just released a book on uh, the Compendium of the Emerald Tablets. We just interviewed him a couple of weeks ago. We just released that interview. Come on out to Broadcast Team Alpha. I interviewed him for Free Cosmos. I interviewed him back in uh, April, it was. And so uh, Billy's just a fantastic guy to speak with about these subjects. He's been on Gaia, Ancient Aliens. In fact, this week, I think he's a, was a Conscious Life Expo, or I'm not sure what it is this weekend. He's actually one of the featured speakers at a particular event this weekend. Billy's just a font of knowledge. So if you get a chance to check out his website, just a fantastic individual. And uh, he lives south of me about an hour and a half maybe two hours south of here. So, another great Florida resident. Dan Willis was another name that we had made a note of, as well as the fact that, according to your biography, you've interviewed Linus Torvalds, and I'm this is back in 1996. I don't know who Linus Torvalds is, but Dan Willis, Linus Torvalds. Linus Torvalds is the guy who created Linux, which is running on 67% of the web servers on the planet. Oh, uh, my God. How about that? It was hence the Linux name. is the Linus. operating system behind Amazon Web Services. Incredible. Yeah. Linus Torvald, he's Finnish. He's the child of rocket scientists. He was a wunderkind. When he was 21 years old or 20 years old, he said, I'm going to write my own Unix. And everybody said, really? And he did. And then he took the... the code that he wrote and merged it with, talk about open source, he merged it with uh, Richard Stallman's GNU project. He took the code from the GNU project. It's such a goofy, GNU is not new or whatever. Anyway, Richard Stallman was one of the original open source advocates before anybody really started using the term open source. They wrote code that would run on different Unixes. There was AT&T Unix, there was HP Unix, there was Solaris, all these different Unixes. And they kind of came out of the box missing some features and missing some tools. So this open source movement back then was to write everything but the piece that the machine boots up with. So all these utilities, you could recompile them on these different platforms. So Torvalds wrote the kernel and then merged it with the GNU uh, utilities and poof, had an operating system. So around 96, he kind of disappeared for a while because he was busy writing code at the time for uh, what was called symmetric multiprocessing, which is kind of a given now on all your computers, even your tablets, your Android tablets and your, you know, your cell phone all uses that multiprocessing architecture. Well, they were just coming out with that for Linux and he was kind of disappeared for a while. So I wrote a, sent him 10 questions, 20 questions. He wrote back and I published it on my website. A very gracious, very decent human being, and um, he's kind of one of the unsung heroes. A lot of people don't know who he is. They know what Linux is, but they don't know who he is specifically, a lot of young people. But uh, if you get a chance, he formed something bigger than Bill Gates could ever hope to do. And one of the things about Linus Torvalds that everybody respects is that he gave it away. He gave away the operating system that he could have cashed in on. He could have been a Bill Gates. The problem was is at the time... Unix was kind of owned by these big players, AT&T, HP, Solaris, or Sun Microsystems, uh, and all these big players owned Unix. And you couldn't just go get Unix unless you paid about three grand to put it on your own PC. And so when Torvalds wrote his own, basically they call it a Unix-alike operating system. So it does everything Unix does. It just doesn't use the AT&T source code. So he released that for free. 
And so I remember when he did that, booting it up and getting the all-important root prompt on a PC for nothing, for free. It was a very, very seminal moment for a lot of us geeks back then. And so out of that was born a lot of other open source software, file sharing software called Samba, which is now running on all your Macs use uh, SMB protocol, which was harvested from Microsoft's code. Microsoft wouldn't release it, but these guys down in uh, Australia said, okay, we're going to figure out what all this is, what all the signals are, and they basically created a SMB protocol workalike that turned a Linux machine into a file server like a Windows for Workgroups or Windows 2000 server. Samba run, runs on Linux and creates a file server just like a Windows file server. Looks just like a Windows file server on the network. So I saved a lot of companies money setting up file servers this way, saved them thousands of dollars instead of having to give to Microsoft. That was open source. That was the pirate days of the internet when it was just getting started. Those were the pirate days of using Linux. Linux has a pirate nature to it. Not that you're stealing anything, but it's kind of this not owned by anybody nature, kind of an independent nature to it. Not really pirates. Nobody was doing torrents or anything like that. But Linux broke the paradigm of this commercial hegemony that was kind of stifling progress. And once Guys like myself were able to get Linux in our hands. We could learn Unix. We could work on the bigger systems and get our own self-training. So it made a lot of us a lot smarter on our own, in our own little homebrew networking labs, learning how these things work. And uh, that home home experimenter lab thing became very hot during the 90s and the uh, early 2000s. A lot of people did it. Still, still a lot of guys doing that. A lot of IT guys they download the latest versions and they're experimenting with this stuff on computers at home, learning how it all works. So it's no longer isolated to learning it in colleges and universities and having to get timeshare permission on a big mainframe. Now this stuff is in the hands of the people. So Linux was a uh, very groundbreaking uh, moment when Linux was released. So that uh, interviewing Linus Torvalds was, uh, was a very interesting moment. Do you have that archived or a copy of the interview anywhere? Uh, yeah, it's available? not even a couple of pages. But it was interesting, though. It got published on uh, Red Hat Linux's website for about two weeks. Everybody had not heard from Linus for a while, and then they posted my article. I was like, wow, my little 15 minutes of fame on that deal. So that was kind of fun. Red Hat. Now, we've heard the terms white and black hat, gray hat. What is a red hat techie exactly? Red Hat Linux was one of the first Linuxes, Linux distributions. Okay, here's how it works. So you've got the kernel, which came from Linus Torvalds. He wrote this specific piece of code is what boots the machine up initially. The chips in the computer go, okay, where's the hard drive? Got a hard drive? I got a hard drive. Okay, Give me the first piece of code to get this thing going. That's the kernel. So the kernel loads all the basic instructions up and says, okay, we've got uh, some USB ports. Oh, look what else you got here. Oh, you got a CD-ROM drive. Oh, okay, cool. Oh, you've got a sound card. Oh, okay, let me see if i got some drivers for that. That's what the kernel does. The kernel goes out and loads and does this interface with all the hardware and all the chips that matter in the system for running the computer. So that kernel is low-level code that talks to the hardware and begins this process of breathing life into the machine when it boots up. 
Torvalds wrote the kernel for that. Now, meanwhile, while Torvalds was doing his kernel, some other guys had come up with a thing called FreeBSD, Berkeley Systems Design Unix. These guys came up with a fork of that called FreeBSD. It had different licensing bases, and it only ran on Intel machines, whereas Linux runs on all 20 or 30 different chipsets that Linux runs on, including phones. You've got Android, which is a fork of Linux, but all of Apple's stuff uses the FreeBSD. Licensing is the issue. So you've got an Apple iPhone, you're running on FreeBSD under the hood. You run an Android, you're running Linux. So uh, I see what Joe says, Linux is by far best for hacking. Absolutely. Uh, you can do as much on Mac as you can on Linux. Uh, it just takes considerable effort to, to kind of get under the hood. The basics are all there, but Linux is a little bit uh, more freewheeling, a little bit more uh, less restrictive for getting getting under the hood. It's designed by nature to with Linux you have distribution so you have the kernel and then people cobble together desktop there's like 20 different desktops you can put on Linux Apple has one desktop and that's the the desktop you get that's it whereas Linux you've got 20 different desktops there are there are Mac like desktops for Linux there are some god awful desktops that people have created for Linux but you can change out your desktop and play around. There's a lot more experimentation you could do with Linux than you can with Apple. Apple was designed to be a commercial, stable, clean environment, commercially backed, commercially supported computing environment, whereas Linux, it's never really become the desktop environment that it, uh, it could be. It could be so much more. I think it's better than Windows. You don't have all the aggravation that you get with Windows, and you don't have all this constant busyness with updates and chattering at the little status bar. Linux is very clean. And there is a Mac-like distribution you can get called Elementary. If you go to elementary.io, uh, the elementary distribution is great. I have that on us. I've, I've put that on people who can't stand Windows. Get Elementary. Get Elementary Linux. Uh, it's really very similar. It has a dock. It has the very a lot of Mac-like features to it. Uh, the guys that are writing that, I think they're trying to uh, achieve that end. So they've created a lot of Mac-like features on elementary. But that being said, you've got like 20 or 30 different distributions of Linux. Some people like uh, Mint. Some people like uh, Ubuntu. Well, Ubuntu and Debian, these are all great distributions. So it depends on what you're doing. Linux's biggest strength is as a server. That's where its biggest strength is. So if you need a file server or you need... Uh, a web server, you want to run on Linux. Windows, on the other hand, is a cobbled-together kernel that wanted to be like Unix, but it's a mess. It's just a mess of patchwork and junk. Uh, I'm sorry, I have no respect for Windows. Windows works by a miracle. Just look at what Microsoft did to Skype. Like you mentioned GitHub earlier. Let's see how badly they messed that up. And Microsoft has basically become irrelevant. You can go Mac or Linux. You don't need Microsoft. You don't need any of that software. Uh, you've got plenty of, speaking of open source, Jaffe, you've got OpenOffice. You've got LibreOffice. Both run on Mac and on Linux. So you, this, you don't need Windows to do what you need to do. You've got plenty of spreadsheet packages, plenty of productivity software, all kinds of utilities and gadgets, all those little things that people like to get close to with their Windows machines. You've got all that same kind of stuff over Apple and on Linux. 
So you don't need Windows. People that really don't want to be bothered by a computer and want to just do what they want to do, you'd really be better off with a Mac, and you'd really be better off with Linux. Uh, I've got people who are non-computer people using Linux. They love it. They'd never go back to Windows. Get a desktop. You get a, you get Chrome. You get Firefox. You have Opera. You have three different browsers. You already know how to use Chrome or Firefox. You've already got those on Linux. You have a basic desktop environment. It's very similar. It's all GUI. It's all you know, the windows open and close the same way. Uh, and you have all the productivity software. There's really no learning uh, or training other than booting it up. In fact, you can go out and make bootable USB sticks with Linux on it, boot it up, play with it, see if you like it, and then you can install it. So you can actually run it without installing it on your hard drive. You can run it from the stick. Now, I don't think you can do that with Windows. You can't do it with Mac. You can install Mac to a separate hard drive and run it from an external drive. But I don't know of anybody that's got Apple running on a stick in the same way. Uh, I think there are some some Windows distributions that run on small stick-like devices, but you can boot up 20 different distributions on a flash drive. We're pretty much out of time here, Tom, and have got to uh, wrap things up as soon as possible. I hear you've muted yourself. That's probably a good idea. We should have done that right from the get-go. It's one of those uh, production things that sometimes go over people's heads. Not that I'm necessarily blaming you, of course, because frankly, that's there, and there's the chair, the captain's. You like that? Squeaky. That's a special effect. I paid extra for that. <laughs> but uh, hey, listen. Uh, so, just in brief, you know, because we do have to once again wrap things up here. How much of a learning curve then is it for dummies like myself? You know, I'm just the I'm Joe Sixpack here, so nothing more than the average man, frankly. Uh, what kind of effort and uh, time frame would a person be looking at there? Secondly, just in brief, we've got to give an overview of what's going on in WPRPN. We totally missed out and skipped over the exciting developments over there, of course. Uh, you are managing to bring about a lot of great positive change, upgrading operations as it were, uh, clear across the board, but in particular as far as the member sites are concerned. So if a person was to look under the hood, see that uh, from a technical standpoint, there's so much more that uh, we have to offer via these member sites than just another blog page, as it were. So Linux or Linux, as it were, uh, in a nutshell, for dummies, and what's going on over at WPRPN. And then at that point, we got to steer things back to the harbor here and maybe take things to the after show, although I'm not too sure if that's really feasible, given the fact of where you are out in the eastern time zone. And your roommate is there, of course, too, one would presume. So we've always got to be mindful of that. But uh, we'll hand things over to you and uh, have at it. The thing about Linux is, like I say, you can run it on a USB stick, try it out. It used to be you could download a CD and burn a CD and boot up off a CD and run it that way too. Now it's kind of migrated to USB sticks. So you can go get yourself a 64-gig USB stick, and there are tools out there that you can use on Windows to load a Linux distribution onto that stick, reboot the computer, you know, whatever trick it takes on your particular laptop or desktop to reboot into that stick and poof, come up in Linux. And you have a complete windowing environment just like you do on Windows or Mac. 
Uh, you have the same nomenclature or the same kind of workflow. You double-click on something or click on a menu of some kind to make stuff go, and you're up and running. It doesn't take a lot of learning. The only thing you have to do is kind of familiarize yourself with sometimes the window controls, the little thing that kills the window is on the other side. Okay, it's on this side. Okay, uh, where's the word processor? Where's the notepad? Okay, all that stuff's available. The photo programs, they're a little different, same but different. Okay, that works a little. There's a few subtle differences, but generally the learning curve is rather pretty quick. I see people frustrated with Windows that have got this thing like, oh my God, I, I'm not going to make it without Windows. You don't need Windows. You don't. And now they've got these annual upgrades that you're going to have to pay for. So uh, download Linux, put it on a stick. It's really not that difficult. There are websites out there. There are YouTubes. It's really pretty simple. Download a tool. You stick a stick in there. You say, okay, where's the distribution you want to load on the stick? And poof, there's a bunch of sites that have USB stick ready-to-go tools that will make it, excuse my French, dumbass-proof for you to do this. And you can at least try out Linux on a stick. And then these same programs have the installer Oh, you want to commit? You want to get rid of Windows altogether? Fine. Copy all your data off to a USB drive, another drive, wipe your hard drive, and go full commit. You, you really, uh, it takes a, there is a small learning curve, but it's not nightmarish. Now, if you need tools like Photoshop or uh, some of these specific branded tools, get a Mac. Much better environment. In fact, the Mac restored my faith in computing. WPRPN, we got a lot going on there. Oh, yeah, yeah, under, yeah. Under the hood. About, yeah, under the hood. Well, WordPress has a, a hidden feature under the hood that enables it to become a mother to subsites. Not submarines, but separate functioning WordPresses. It's like a replication thing. It, it's able to spawn little WordPresses under the main WordPress and gives the owner of the primary site kind of like mothership control over the smaller units. But they're essentially fully functioning WordPress sites. So these member sites are fully functioning WordPress sites you can launch on Jaffe's website that become your own space to do and promote your work or your project or whatever it is. Just want to do some blogging. But the cool thing about it is you're networking off of Jaffe's website. So as he brings traffic in to WPRPN, people click on the member site link down at the bottom and go, okay, who are these people? What are they all about? And I think it's an opportunity for people to be seen who might not be seen any other way. They're basically able to hitch their uh, cart to your uh, your train. You know, they can hook their their little train car up to your big train and network off of you in this way. So uh, definitely worth considering if you're trying to network, trying to reach other markets. Definitely worthwhile. I think that's about it. We've pretty much reached the end of the road and are going to take the Robin Hood here back into the harbor and uh, fasten the ship to the docks here out on, well, the pier. Is there a difference between docks and piers? It's pretty much the same. Piers are a little more kind of elevated, I think, aren't they? You know, I never really thought about it. You, yeah. You, Broached a very interesting question that I've never really given any thought to. Talk like a pirate day. You know, that's where we would let it all hang out as we did there a number of weeks ago. So, yeah, you got to have your nautical 
and uh, seafaring lingo down, obviously. The captain always razzes us, gives us a hard time. I'm not that tough on you, that Jaffe. I really gotta give you the benefit of the doubt and let you just run. That is your brand. <laughs> Captain. So, a thousand subs on YouTube. That's what we're working towards here, folks. Uh, who knows? As Tom said, or the way that he kind of uh, you know referred to things, basically, when YouTube is going to shift their goalposts around yet yeah, once again, get up to a thousand, monetize the channel, then they make it five thousand and ten thousand, so on and so forth, each and every time. But that's what we're shooting for. So please, if you haven't subbed to our YouTube channel by now, we encourage you to do so. Patreon as well, too. We have an account over there, a wallet, as it were, profile page. And if you're independently wealthy, just go crazy. We definitely welcome all donations, of course. Uh, you can pretty much support us for anywhere from starting from a dollar per item of premium content up to the sky is pretty much the limit. Five dollars per item of premium content gives you a an hour per month of complimentary chat time with myself, actually. Go head-to-head and you can interrogate or question me, pick my brain, or just have a friendly chat over a cup of coffee. Speaking of which, uh, that's really all it is to support us is no more than the cost of a cup of coffee per month would be great. It's ideal, of course, via the Robin Hood, the pirate ship. Naturally, we like to look at things more in the context of Frosty Flagon of Grog. So just a couple bucks per month, folks, you can definitely help to keep the ship afloat and some wind in the operations sales. That includes PayPal donations as well as Mines Tokens, Mines.com. Joe Pyatt sent us a few tokens just a couple of weeks ago. That was much appreciated. And, you know, we encourage longtime listeners to to do that sort of thing, as well as maybe if you're new to the show and really feel inspired, feel as if you've found what you've been looking for here out on the high digital seas, then, you know, fly at it. And uh, we very much appreciate your generosity. So half of all these donations, of course, too, do go to charity in a direct sense of the word. No strings attached. As Tom was referring to earlier, the sub-site domains, in-house, basically building for yourself, tricking out, as Mr. Schaefer likes to say, your own distinct quarters, that there's a lot that's really being done via WordPress. And if you are handy at all and familiar with WordPress, you're probably going to have a lot of fun with that. If all else fails, just remind and share the content, comment, like, all those good things. Make sure people hear more about the live streams that we produce here twice a week. I'm not sure bi-weekly basis is the correct way of referring to things, but twice a week we got the midweek muck around, the World Pirate Radio News 
segment on Tuesday nights, Wednesdays here in Asia, Tokyo, and Seoul. Friday nights, of course, the feature shows with our guests that we welcome here to the flagship, the Robin Hood, the wider WPRPN.com network. We're just part of what we see building here behind the scenes is a broader armada and force essentially to be reckoned with. Speaking of the show schedule, Jack Ottman from Minds.com had been booked to appear this coming Friday. We're still hoping that he's going to get back to us here before too long. We've been waiting for a while now to hear back from him. Not sure if the private messaging feature has completely gone offline or what exactly is taking place from his end of things, but hopefully uh, we'll be able to connect with him and put together a decent live stream next week. Following up on the 19th of October, we got Christina Taft from Worldy.com. This month has been a good one for CEOs. Dr. J of Dr. J Radio Live. Actually, just that was a couple of weeks ago. But this week, Tom Schaefer, of course, uh, president and CEO of Free Peoples of the Cosmos, as well as central player of broadcast team Alpha. That's easy hashtag, BTA. Followed up by... In two weeks' time, Christina Taft of Worldy.com, a similar kind of online social networking and information sharing platform as to what places like Minds.com offer to the wider world. Miami Tom, this week, actually, as we know him, has a couple of other monikers that he goes by, and really, Tommy Shutter is his most favored as of late. Simply Tom Schaefer works well also. Tommy Shutter is, is the way that, uh, once again, I think he prefers. Uh, Showtimes, Tom, just to let people know, as well as contact information, free cosmos, or free people of the cosmos, great way of doing things. What else? Uh, you've got all your links here in the show description area, minds.com, Twitter. What more can you share with us there as far as uh, social media, URLs? Two websites. Uh, freepeopleofthecosmos.org and then uh, broadcastteamalpha.com all the showtimes and stuff are there but it's easy enough Free Cosmos I'm going to be on there Sunday mornings at 9 and then I'm Broadcast Team Alpha at 3 o'clock in the afternoon Eastern Time so showtimes are on those websites social media links for, for all that but everything you need is at those websites you don't need to go anywhere else it's all right there so uh, the shows are piped in there. We've got the uh, YouTube and the chat piped in, just like you have here on yours. And so people really don't need to go much else. And we also have our podcasts are now synced up with Apple iTunes. But, again, you can still listen to the podcast right on the site. So go out to the sites, freepeopleofthecosmos.org and uh, broadcastteamalpha.com and uh, connect with us there. And, of course, those the links to the YouTube channels are there. I'm Free Cosmos on uh, YouTube, my own channel. And then Broadcast Team Alpha has its own channel. And all our interviews and podcasts for each of the shows are there. So we're just going podcast crazy. 
a different version of Tom today. Very nice to hear. Happy to hear him, or his rather, moving forward uh, is what Joey Boomer has to say regarding today's live stream. Pirate Joe Eminon saying he has a program now. Mac and DOS, Linux, so you can make a computer made for Windows operate like a Mac. Apple, how about that? Quite tricky. It's even faster than the stock Apple code. Also, when Tom and I get together on Facebook, we make each other laugh to the point of gasping for breath. Really funny stuff. I'm not sure how much funny stuff there's actually been here this week with the live stream. In all fairness to Joe, I'm not sure, I'm not familiar with that name. He must be using a different name on Facebook, so I apologize. I, I don't recognize the name. So, uh, But yeah, Joe, thanks for that. I appreciate uh, that. Joe Sapardo. Oh, oh, right, right, right. Okay, that makes sense now. That makes sense. Got it. Sure. So there we go. That about does it. I think we've covered everything, all the talking points, of course, and all the technical in-house matters and so forth. So be sure, once again, people to check us out on Minds.com, Pirate Radio Network, my own personal channel, Jaffe Rutter, Facebook, although really... It's a headache and something that I'm just not a fan or supporter of, frankly, especially when you start looking into the history of how it came about. Do a search, people. LifeLog, Facebook. It's directly brought to you courtesy of uh, DARPA, the Pentagon. You can probably throw the CIA into the mix as well, too. So there you go. We don't need no stinking warrants. So we are going to head off to the after show, at least even if just for a brief conversation and uh, behind-the-scenes parting of the ways. We'll have to play that one by ear. Off to a bit of a, a shaky start here, of course, this week. I think we managed to rebound quite nicely, though. And Tom really rose to the occasion and gave a pretty, I think, well-rounded picture of his history, his interests, where he presently finds himself, all the various projects that he's active and engaged in so thanks everybody for joining us here live with this week's feature stream you got uh, something yeah appreciate you having me on this has been great yeah and i'm looking forward to that robert vandenbrook uh, live stream tomorrow night when i say tomorrow night i'm talking in korea time folks so that's uh 9 a.m in the eastern time zone New York, Chicago, Miami, that's right. Yeah, Sunday morning, and six out in the West. So until we meet again out on the high digital seas, on behalf of Captain Long John Sinclair, this week's feature guest, Tom Schaefer, and all the rest of the crew here on the Robin Hood, I'm your shows and ship's chief communications officer, Jaffe Ryder. Tally-ho. I know. There we be. Having carefully looked over each of our navigation panel instruments, checking every level, switch, dial, cable, knob and pulley, by all accounts and indications, we indeed see it's time once again to drop anchor inside Mystic Bay and draw an end to another week of Pirate Radio Podcasts. Remember... If you're looking for a little more lively online action, keep in mind we've likely got yet another great 
free-flowing rogues gallery after show coming up for the next hour in either Skype, Google Hangouts, or Peer.im. Also, if you've in any way enjoyed or found yourself benefiting from the shows we've tirelessly produced over the past two years, you might want to drop by our Patreon tip jar page and lend a little support. Half of all network donations go directly to charity. Help to keep those numbers growing over on Patreon and we'll be able to extend even more of a generous pirate hand. Looking forward now to the balance of 2018, we're still not quite yet booked. So if you yourself have a new, novel, intriguing, or otherwise underreported idea, unique individual, or pressing item in mind, be sure to either drop us a line directly over on WPRPN.com or fire us a quick email via PirateOneRadio at gmail.com. We're always open to exploring fresh creative suggestions, intriguing guest ideas, cutting-edge discussion topics, and captivating themes. You can further embark on your own personal pirate journey by either liking, commenting on, subscribing to, or just following us via virtually any mainstream social media platform, including Twitter, Facebook, Google+, or Minds.com. So don't forget to become engaged until we meet again out on the high digital seas. I'm your host as always, the ship's chief communications officer, Jaffe Ryder. Tally-ho.